Now, on this Invest Talk podcast, Justin Klein listens to your questions. Starting to learn more about value stocks rather than growth stocks. You guys are saving me a, a lot of money. And provides unbiased answers. All right. Well, you're looking at historical blue chip names, and they've endured. Their brands have endured. Invest Talk. Over 42 million downloads and counting. Across America and around the world, your participation makes it unique. 888-99-CHART. At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Thursday, June 30th, 2022 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and I'm excited for this hour with you answering your finance and investment questions and giving you my unbiased, straightforward answers and perspective. Now, we have reached the end of the first half of the year, and it was quite the rocky one, one of the worst first halves in market history. And that should not shock anyone with the deluge of headwinds that the market has seen so far in the first half, higher rates, tighten liquidities, liquid, liquidity conditions, excuse me, uh, throughout the, the globe, not just here in the U.S., uh, but a- around the world. And you have a war, you have inflation, higher commodity prices, uh, etc. All this is bringing a storm that is slowing economies rather fast over the past six months. And the market has started to price that in accordingly. So a lot to really unpack, but also a lot to still be optimistic about. So I know it's easy to be one way or the other, uh, but there's always a balance. You always have to, you always have to temper your emotions and know that the good times are never as good as they seem and the bad times are never as bad as they seem in the moment. So I am here to help give you some perspective and information to help you make good informed decisions, not emotional decisions, not based on what you feel when you look at the price movement of assets, because that's, that's always irrelevant. It's how does that compare to the future prospects of that asset, whether that's the business, whether it is a bond, whether it is crypto, etc. And so this investment environment brings a different set of 
fundamentals, which is what you have to really focus on. What is the backdrop of the economy, not just today, but in the near future? No one knows what's going to happen five, ten years from now. But if you do the work, you have the right data, you look at leading economic indicators, for example, you look at how markets are, are shifting, bond market especially, which a lot of people ignore, you can have a good idea whether the pace of economic deceleration is going to accelerate or moderate. Now, the inflationary world that we're living in today brings a different set of challenges than we've seen in the past. But my goal is to help you understand this environment and how to avoid the pitfalls. So I invite your phone calls and questions now to our anytime toll-free line, which is 888-99-CHART. You can call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Leave a question on the answer machine and we will answer it on a future show or you can call live from four to five Pacific time each weekday. Now let's get right to our first listener question now. Hi, I was calling about marijuana ETFs, have MJ. Since I got it, I'm down about 70%. I just wanted to know if you think it's worth uh, staying in it or is it time to cut my losses? Thank you for your help. All right, looking at MJ. And with anything like this, this is a, this is a good lesson, is don't invest in an area of the market when there's a lot of excitement around it. Uh, you know, this was this was launched in 2016. That was a time when remember like Tilray. Let's look at the Tilray. Let's see where that's at now. Yeah, that one. Yeah, this was around I guess that was 2018. So that went from $23, hit a high of $300 in the first uh, you know, few trading uh, months of its existence. But 2016, 2018 timeframe, that was when the marijuana stocks were, were pretty hot, especially the Canadian marijuana stocks. And what's interesting is they kind of chopped sideways for the first three years, MJ did, around the 20 to 40 range, between 20 and 40 range, and then broke down. Now it's trading at $5.80. So the sentiment is certainly poor. I still think the long-term growth is going to be good for the sector because I do think it eventually becomes more legal, more legit. What that pace is, you know, we'll, we'll see. Uh, you would think with a Democrat in office that that would push for some sort of legalization or decriminalization, but Biden's been in office for a year and a half now, and we're not seeing that traction despite having control of uh, both both houses of Congress. So I think the fact that that hasn't, nothing's moved the needle is what's, le what's leading this to a very strong downtrend. But what I would wait for is capitulation in this particular ETF. This is a good proxy for the space in general. And I'm not seeing that yet. I'm not seeing everybody just completely give up. And frankly, I'm not touching it until then. Um, now, long term, is this probably a good price? Yeah, it probably is. You know, a decade from now, do what I say, uh, the marijuana stocks are broadly higher than they are today after such being such uh, beaten down names. 
uh, I think that's certainly a good possibility. Could this be cut in half from where it's at today? Absolutely, because I'm not seeing any indication whatsoever that this is going to turn to the upside. So it depends on your time horizon. Near term, I see no reason it's not going lower. Long term, probably a good time to get in the space now that every you know most people are are negative on the space. They're they've sold their shares, etc. But capitulation is not quite there. Now my focus point today is based on the story why big tech is pouring money into carbon removal and removal uh, carbon removal amounts to the process of storing carbon dioxide that's already been admitted. So we're going to look at where they are investing and see how that could feed into corporate profits or investment opportunities. Next, I want to look at corporate debt and a new Fed tracker is showing that there's strain within the investment grade bond market and PayPal, private equity pal is certainly going to pay attention to things like that. Next, let's look at value investing to growth and value investors have beaten the growth side of the market by the widest margin since 2001 so far this year. And we're going to look at the data and what that could pretend for the back half of the year. And then pension funds, they are making riskier and risky bets. And what could that mean for uh, pension fund funds more broadly? And is that a problem? Maybe if you're a pension holder, we're going to look at that. Now let's take a look at the market today. The S&P was down about 33 points, end of the quarter, end of the first half, and certainly a depressed first half of the year. Now one thing you have to think about with quarter end in times like this are redemptions, hedge fund redemptions and, and um, different types of funds that are out there that uh, investors can redeem at the end of quarters. And there's been a wave of redemptions of hedge funds that are just down dramatically. You know, they're doing very well in a, a market where taking a lot of risk was rewarded. And then suddenly things were changing and they've suffered dramatically. Look at Tiger Global as a kind of the poster child of that, you know, losing, I believe they lost, they've lost two thirds of their gains from when they launched in 2004. Think of that carnage. And there's others out there that are underwater, that are just, uh, you know, never really got out from the overvalued positions that they were in, uh, you know, during the, the boom times. And so I think that's been weighing on the markets near term over the past few days. But if you look underneath the surface, the euro dollar market is now pricing in a Fed rate cut in the first quarter of next year. Yes a Fed rate cut. So I said it, lowering interest rates first quarter of next year. So I'm starting to sniff out that the market is starting to price in a Fed pivot. Now the Fed, the market is always, always front running these things. The market is always going to move before the Fed actually does it. So they're saying that the inflation data, which came out today, but it's lagging once again, that's the main number. Commodity prices didn't start to pull back until early June. And therefore, you're not going to see that feed into the data until we get the numbers for the month of June, which is a month from today. So I think we still have a little ways before you get that, but the market is sniffing that out, right? 
saying that the Fed's data, Fed incoming data is going to start to get weaker and weaker. And that means a slower pace of tightening and potentially a pause. And now an expectation of a, a Fed rate cut by Q1 of next year. Now we're moving into a break. And I'm here now. I'm taking your questions live. This is the way to go because we can interact. So call now. This is Invest Talk 888 chart. Why do listener questions make Invest Talk better? Which of these would you recommend? Because each caller presents fresh questions in their voice. I was curious if you still think aluminum has a ways to go from here. When do I know the right time to take profits? Should I be looking for an exit? Should I be holding here? And listeners instinctively realize that Invest Talk uniquely offers a welcome dose of investing satisfaction. I think you have a terrific show, and I've learned a whole lot. Hey guys, love your show. Uh, I've been listening for several years now, and I've learned a lot. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley understand what investors need and want. I would look at it from a tax perspective. If there's no tax implications, move on, find better ways to use that money. I'm going with the odds. I think a half position now would at least get you in it and get you watching it so you won't lose track of it. Don't forget to call Investor 888-99-CHART. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. So as long as your questions involve the stock market or general investment topics and definitions, we set no limits. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Justin and I are ready. Are you? Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888-99-CHART. Hi, Justin. This is Glenn in San Francisco. I wanted to check with you about the behavior of value stocks during a recession. It seems over the last month or so, as the possible recession is being priced in, value stocks are getting hit just as hard as growth. I've been in value stocks, and so far this year, they've held up well compared to the overall market, but wondering if that is likely to shift and become a liability as we potentially move into a recession here? And if so, you know, what's the action? Is it time to become a, a little bit more balanced rather than leaning so hard into value? Thanks and appreciate what you're doing. Look forward to the answer on the podcast. The answer to your question is somewhat yes. Uh, value stocks are typically a bit more cyclical. And they have been underperforming over the past, uh, let's call it month or so. Let's take a look here. Yeah, SPYG to the SPYV, so growth to value, bottomed late last month. So for about the last month, growth has been outperforming. Modestly, not, not a big reversal of the trend that started in the fall of last year. But yes. When you get more of a growth scare in the economy, you are going to get more of a sell-off in the value side. And that's that's something you really have to understand is that when you're leaning one way in the portfolio on a particular sector or style factor like value over growth, there's going to be periods where that underperforms. It's about capturing the longer-term trends. You're never Nothing's going to go in a linear linear, linear fashion where it's just straight forward 
outperforming one thing every single week and every single month. It's not how it works. Even when growth was outperforming for from 2007 to, to, to basically 2021, when that was going along, there were there were there were years where value did outperform, but the vast majority of the time, quarter, most quarters, most months, growth outperformed, and that's going to be the case for the next decade, where value outperforms over the long term, but there's going to be months where where that happens, where, where growth is going to outperform. So you have to be prepared for that. Okay. You're listening to Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. And for investors, the need to remain vigilant never ends. And I'm ready to take your questions live at 888 chart Each day, Invest Talk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for Invest Talk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. Let's go talk with Egg in Virginia. Let's talk about crypto. Hey, how's it going, Justin? It's going well. What, uh, which crypto do you want to speak about? So I'm, I've been watching Ethereum. I've never owned crypto, um, mainly because it's been so overpriced for a number of years. But I've been watching uh, Ethereum, and I was looking back at the 2017-2018 last, the first time it really you know, bubbled and then crashed. Um, and it mm-hmm. dropped about 90% that time. And so I was kind of eyeing that you know, 90% drop again. But I was kind of curious your thoughts on the backdrop now versus then. Do you think 90% is, you know, not enough at this point? Or is that a good potential entry point? So from a techno perspective, I'll say on Ethereum, 400 is, for about 450 is probably that next level of support. It's around 1,000 now. Um, so another 50% yeah. drop. That's that's kind of where it consolidated back in uh 2020 before the, 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 you know, the, the move higher. So technically that's where the support is. Now the backdrop of crypto, I think remains very poor, uh, tightening liquidity conditions and just the breakout in trend towards higher interest rates. Now, will interest rates probably pull back near term, probably consolidate, et cetera. But if we are entering a higher inflationary environment, which I do believe we are for the longer term, it's going to be bad for crypto in general, because crypto is the ultimate long duration asset. Doesn't yield anything unless it's, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, Ponzi scheme like setup with a lot of these stable coins. And you've seen a lot of them kind of blow up recently because of their Ponzi nature. Uh, But they don't yield dollars, right? So you're not getting a yield there. And then what is the use case for these things? And Ethereum, you know, because of NFTs and, and DAOs and such, there, there's some kind of limited use cases. And I think there's still a lot of feeling around in the industry of what practical applications can these technologies really be used for? And what problems can they truly solve? And I think we're very early on. I've said this many times. It's very similar to the internet in the 60s. We had internet in the 60s. It was universities sending packets of data to one another and figuring out different protocols. And it took 30 years before 
they figured out standardization of the protocols. Today, it's called TCIP. And we, not until the 90s was, was the technology applied and able to find those use cases of transferring data across uh, phone lines at that point. And I think that's the same for crypto today. It's what is that use case? What is that standard protocol look like? And it's probably going to take decades and it's going to go through years and maybe even a full decade, probably, you know, the next decade coming up where it loses its luster. People forget about it and it's kind of laughed at for many years and then it makes a comeback probably, you know, a cycle or two away. That's what I think happens with crypto. So I have no really interest in in getting excited about it because of the inflationary backdrop, because of the interest rates going up and it being the longest long duration asset you can think of. And the, the limited use case that is going to take many, many years to hash out. So I'm not excited about it technically, fundamentally, technologically, maybe, but it's still very early. So I wouldn't be in a rush to, to get into it. Let's go talk to Dan in Palo Alto looking at BYDDF. Let's take a look at this one. Is this BYD? Is this the, if I'm remembering correctly, is this the battery company? Just a couple of years. It's an EV company. It's EV. the one EV that uh, Warren Buffett has invested in. I just wondered. I know it's Chinese, but uh, it's huge. And Europe is planning to go all EV. At least they're talking about it in the next 10 years or so. wonder what you thought. I'll say the same thing about the EV market. I think it's drastically overpriced. Uh, gotcha. The car business is typically very competitive. It's very low margin. It's very high, highly capital intensive. And just because it's an electric vehicle doesn't mean that the dynamics of the industry longer term are going to be any different. It's just simply a different drivetrain. And long term, I'm not that bullish on China. So not something that excites me. Let's just say that. Uh, you know, and technically it's definitely overbought currently. So I wouldn't be buying BYD at these prices. Thanks for the call. I'm Justin Klein. I'm ready to take your questions live at 888-99-CHART. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It is official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, 
At these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's Attack Resistance Platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. No two portfolios are alike, and every investor has a unique set of circumstances. So don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Now, my focus point today is based on this story, why big tech is pouring money into carbon capture removal, excuse me, removal, not renewal, removal. And this is... Very interesting because I think there's going to be a battle going on between those that are trying to fight climate change and those that are trying to simply provide energy to their constituents. Now, the market for carbon removal is expanding rapidly as governments put an increasingly high price on carbon emissions. And what's happening is private money, a lot from tech companies, are investing in early stage carbon capture companies. And the goal is to scale up and bring the cost down. Because that's really the big issue here with a lot of nascent industries is that their technologies are often uneconomical. And it takes an industry like technology that has the capital because their businesses tend to do pretty well right now, and a long time frame in order to see those investments come to fruition. Now, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has doubled down on their push to remove billions of tons of carbon from the air, carbon dioxide from the air. And carbon removal in general is some type of process of storing carbon dioxide that's already been emitted. Now, the simple way is to plant trees. That's what I would say. Let's go plant a ton of trees, put billions into planting trees. 
saving rainforests, improving the ability of the ocean to absorb a lot of that carbon, phytoplankton, etc. But some experts say that's not enough. I'm not an expert, but maybe they're right. But in April, Stripe, along with Alphabet, Meta, Shopify, and McKinsey, they launched an initiative called Frontier. And they plan to spend $925 million on carbon removal by 2030 from smaller startup carbon removal companies. Now, pulling CO2 out of the air with uh, giant fans or injecting into rocks, those are a couple ways that they, they tend to do that, along with altering the pH of oceans to absorb more of the carbon from the atmosphere. So there's various methods of carbon capture. There's not just one. There's a company called Climeworks, and what they do is they sequester CO2 permanently in rocks. They dissolve captured carbon in water, and they inject it into rock formations, and it mineralizes and permanently storing that underground in a mineral. And so after two years after the injection, it turns into stone. So that's one way. Another, carbon engineering. They sell their CO2 they capture to oil and gas companies that is used to help recover oil. Problem is, is yes, it's making oil production less carbon intensive, but it's still burning some sort of carbon. So I think that's the issue with carbon engineering, but at least it's solving two issues, right? It's making uh, our, our biggest source of energy consumption a little bit greener, not net negative, but not as, uh, not as pollutive as simply burning oil. Then there's charm industries. And what they do is they found a cheaper way to remove, uh, uh, they basically take stalks and stems and leaves from farms, material that's already absorbed a lot of CO2 and they turn it into oil and they inject it underground, capturing that carbon permanently, as opposed to, you know, when the plant dies, it, it releases that into the atmosphere. Carbon cure, this one's interesting, is they inject carbon into concrete mixes. It actually makes the concrete stronger. And then when you build when you when you build a building, you have to use less concrete overall. So it's greener in multiple ways. And companies like Shopify, Mapbox, Zendesk, they all were some of the first customers. And so these are just some ways that companies are investing in carbon capture. About 40 countries and over 20 cities, states, and provinces have some sort of carbon pricing. And then the big question is, what does that carbon level have to get to, the cost of that carbon to go to, to actually incentivize, to make these processes economical? And this is kind of that private-public partnership that... I think is probably a good way if you're really trying to solve this issue, if you feel like it's an issue that's of importance, it's probably the only way this is going to happen. And it generally isn't a bipartisan thing, 
or, or just bipartisanship isn't generally uh, common, but this is one of the issues that is bipartisan. And the Department of Energy recently launched a $3.5 billion program to develop four direct air capture hubs across the U.S., and they want to move a million, remove a million tons of carbon each year. So interesting trend and opportunity for those companies that can take advantage of those high carbon prices. Now, you probably heard us mention that we have Invest Talk listeners across America and around the world. We will demonstrate the next with a question that came in earlier from Germany. Hello, Stephen Justin. This is Paulo from Germany. My question is about Devon Energy. I'm looking at the stock and I'd like to add on it in maybe in the low $50 range. I'd like to substitute Exxon for Devon Energy since I want to realize a little bit of gains in Exxon. Do you think it's a good strategy? Thank you for your comments on it, and uh, I'm going to listen to it at the show. So thanks again. Bye-bye. Well, you're talking about selling Exxon and buying Devon, and that would be an aggressive strategy. Why? Well, because Devon is a pure E&P company. They produce oil, gas, natural gas, liquids, etc. here in the U.S. and Canada. Exxon does that as well, but they also have refining business. They have a chemical business, petrochemical business. They're even getting into things like carbon capture, like we just talked about. So their business is very diversified. And you can see that in their earnings. It's not nearly as volatile as a Devon. But if it, if oil and gas prices tend to go up over time. If you're a believer that you're in a bull market for uh, energy, even though we're getting a bit of a pullback here, then Devin's going to have, let's say, a higher beta to the to the energy prices. Devin Energy's beta is 1.07, meaning it's about 7% more volatile than the overall market. Exxon's beta is 0.51 means it's about half as volatile as the overall market. Okay, so I like both of them. And if you're switching out of Exxon to Devon, you're just taking more risk. And that risk cuts both ways. If oil pulls back even more, it doesn't go into a longer term bull market, Devon's going to struggle a lot more than Exxon. But it's going to take advantage of better oil prices, better natural gas prices overall, longer term than an Exxon. So it depends on the risk you're wanting to take. But I like both of them. And Devin, low 50s, it's a good area to pick it up. I'm Justin Klein. You're listening to Invest Talk, and you want to grow your wealth, right? And that's why we're here. But of course, you make your investment decisions, and there will always be a bit of emotions that can creep into your judgment process. And that's what we're here to help you with, help you cleanse yourself of as many emotions in the investing process as you can. And fear is probably the most common, especially in times like this emotion that drives people's 
bad decision making. So my advice is to define your investment comfort zone. And one way, one way we do that is using a free online tool called Risklize. We pay for the subscription, but it's on our website. You can go and take it for free and it'll give you a risk number. And what we do for clients is we make sure that they're invested along the lines of their risk number. And then when I do portfolio reviews, I compare their portfolio with their actual risk number to know whether they can handle the risk that they're taking in their portfolio. Calibrate it. Calibrate that portfolio accordingly. So I encourage you to go check that out and take it. But for now, I'm ready to take your questions live at 888-99-CHART. Why do listener questions make Invest Talk better? Which of these would you recommend? Because each caller presents fresh questions in their voice. When do I know the right time to take profits? And listeners instinctively realize that Invest Talk uniquely offers a welcome dose of investing satisfaction. I think you have a terrific show, and I've learned a whole lot. So don't forget to call Invest Talk. 888-99-CHART. Now let's check in on the new Fed tracker that they just recently came out with, and it's called the Corporate Bond Market Distress Index, the CMDI. This is from the Fed's New York Bank branch, and they're updating it once a month, and it's covering the investment grade market. And it's a scale from zero to one. The lower the number, the calmer the market is. And the latest reading came in at 0.36, 0.36 out of zero to one. For context, last November, it was at 0.8, very low reading, very low level of distress. So we're not super, we know we're not way up there, uh, but we, it, it's, it's a pretty decent increase from where we were just six months ago, but not as high as the peak of 0.61 that happened in April of 2020. So it's not hitting the peak of the COVID peak, shall we say. So corporate bonds have been under pressure, demanding a higher premium to buy them compared to, to, to treasuries. That's what this is kind of measuring. And then, so the premium offered by high quality corporate bonds has riven, risen from one point, to 1.51, up from 0.9% at the start of the year. So that's the spread between treasuries and investment grade. And junk-rated bonds premiums have gone even higher. And so this is something I'm sure they're going to watch. And the distress index for junk-rated debt stands at 0.22. That's up from 0.15 at the end of last year. So what's interesting is the move on the investment grade, although the total spread is smaller, but the change in that spread has been a lot larger percentage wise. So the broad market index stands at 0.2 and that's a, just a small uptick from where we were at 0.18 uh, six months ago. So the broad looking at both junk rated as well as uh, all types of, uh, of credit rated debt, right? That has some sort of uh, credit risk, okay? Now, New York Fed researchers said that the stress index for investment grade debt has been pushed higher by uh, friction in trading of outstanding bonds. So less liquid bond market, but it's been less 
that's been less of an issue in the junk rated market. So it's been a little more liquid on that side. So they developed the CMDI in the past couple of years and they back tested it to 2005 to test how well it warned about previous panics. And it hit a record level in point, it was, even though it wasn't around then, it's using the same methodology, but it hit a level of 0.76 in 2009, kind of the peak of the financial crisis. So that gives you a sense of, of, of where, uh, where it's at in relation. It's still well below 2000 and definitely below where we, sorry, 2020 and well below where we were in 2009. Now let's go talk to Usher in Dallas, looking at FND. Yes, hi, Justin. How are you doing? Doing all right. Good. Yeah, I'm, I'm calling to talk about FND, uh, floor and decor. Um, mm -hmm. It is, it, it, it has come down significantly. It seems like it's undervalued. Um, the fundamentals look good, has some debt. Uh, but I think in terms of the trend, I think the housing market is going to slow down, but the trend, uh, you know, to there are more development and building going on. Um, and I think it's going to, maybe it's going to speed up, uh, you know, after years of underdevelopment, maybe there's going to be more house building activities. So hopefully this is going to, you know, benefit from that trend. So just calling to see what you think about it. Well, it is trading near its typical lows in price to sales ratio down to 1.8. The last time it hit that level was in the depths of the, the COVID, COVID uh, lockdowns. And, and market crash. So I think it is cheap. So the slowdown, I think in the housing market is for the most part priced in for a lot of these names. And if the Fed does pivot, which I, I am expecting the market starting to price in, I think these are the names that are, are, are going to get a, a nice rally. Uh, you know, even if they make the, their earnings are flat year over year from where they were last year to $2.44, uh, I still think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's relatively cheap. The issue is technically it's not breaking higher. There's nothing telling me it's going to turn, but if the Fed does pivot, I think it's goodbye for medium term. Thanks for the call. Give me a call at 888-99-CHART. Steve Peasley and Justin Klein are ready to answer your finance and investment questions. Call Talk. 888-99-CHART. Hi, Stephen Justin. I have a question regarding the company called Quadel. The symbol is Q-D-E-L. I wanted to get your thoughts. They just recently merged with another company and wondered what you think the outlook is and what a good entry point would be. So I'll be listening to the answer on your show. Thank you. All right, looking at QDEL. Used to be called Q Quidel. Now it's Quidel Ortho Corp. I'm not sure about the merger. I haven't looked at that, but earnings are expected to decelerate dramatically. And what they do is they develop rapid diagnostics tests for infectious diseases, such as COVID. And so that's why their business boomed. They only made $3 per share in 2019, sorry, $2.97. And that's down from 306 in 2018. So it was struggling flat. 
kind of business pre-COVID. And then they made almost $20 per share in 2020, $17.72 last year, expected to make $14.88 this year, and only $5.74 next year. So clearly, the expectation is testing falling off a cliff. And I'm seeing it all around. I mean, they're pulling the need for tests to attend large events. Uh, and I just so see no need for uh, their their business longer term. It's not something they're going to sustain this level of earnings. And let's say they're going to make $5 per share next year. You're talking about 20 times multiple on something that's shrinking, probably going to trend back to $3 per share in earnings. If that's the case, it's a $35 multiple on a shrinking business. I'm not, the technicals are horrible. The business fundamental outlook isn't much better. And so I'm definitely passing on QDEL. Probably a good short, actually. Now let's uh, pivot to one last voicemail right now before we close. Hi, Justin. It's Antonio from Illinois. I was looking to see how to get bond exposure. Don't have a lot of cash, but would like to get bond exposure. Thank you very much. All right. Well, you don't have bond exposure or you don't have much cash. So individual bond exposure might be difficult. So you probably want to use some sort of ETF, mutual fund. And this is, this should be your thought process. In an inflationary environment, yes, I know inflation is going to moderate, but longer term, we're likely to see higher inflation. In bonds, you want to take more credit risk and less duration risk. What does that mean? Well, junk bonds over investment grade because you're going to get a premium in yield. You want to be shorter term in duration, meaning going out probably anywhere from three to seven years in that range to where you're not affected dramatically by higher interest rates. If you're in a long-term 30-year government bond, for example, you're getting very little yield. Remember that yield can be used to reinvest in other bonds and higher interest bonds when you get that, 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 that interest uh, payment and when interest rates rise. And so if you're in government bonds, your yields can be very low versus High yield bonds where your interest payments can be high. So that's one way to understand why high yield bonds tend to generally have less duration risk than those safer bonds. So that's how you think about it. Shorter duration, lower credit risk, because you want to be compensated. You want to get higher yield. And in inflationary environments, it's easier to pay that back. So if you're a more marginal credit, it's going to be easier to pay that interest and not default. Now, what bond funds you use, ETFs, mutual funds, you know, I can't recommend particular ones, but definitely do some research. Morningstar.com is a good, good place for that. But if you buy individual bonds, $10,000 a piece, I would go that route if you can, but it doesn't sound like you have that much money. I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. And we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads. 
Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.